It's often said we're living through a great battle between the politics of hope and the politics of fear. Hope can be a great motivating force in politics, but so can fear. In January, the teenage climate campaigner Greta Thunberg told the grown-ups at Davos, I don't want your hope. I want you to panic, and then I want you to act. But on climate change and on many other issues, fear can also turn into fatalism. So how can we remain hopeful without losing our sense of reality? That's our big question today on Polarize, the RSA's podcast about the big divides in our politics and culture and how to fix them. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this week we're live from the Wilderness Festival! Thank you, thank you. Very, there's only actually six people in here. That was completely amazing. Um, right, uh, the RSA is here at Wilderness all day, hosting discussions, exploring bold, optimistic visions uh, of the future. But we have an atmosphere of political anxiety in Britain and around the world. So uh, what better way to start the day than to talk about this issue of hopes and fears? My guest today is a columnist for The Guardian who writes about everything from politics to pop culture and his Anywhere But Westminster series has taken him all over the UK talking to ordinary people about politics. I've always really wanted John to be my best friend. You know that thing when you're at school and you want someone to be your best friend but you're too shy to say it to them? I've always felt that way about John. Well, you've said it now. It's good. I'm very honoured. Thank you. Thank you. Please welcome John Harris. Okay, so we're going to start, as we always do on Polarise, with our full disclosure segment. So we put our cards on the table and we start out by setting uh, our starting point for today's conversation. So, John, hope. What's the point of hope? Well, I think of myself as being on the left, progressive sort of side of politics. But I think this equally as much applies to people on the right in their own, as I would see it, slightly deluded way. If you, have, if you don't have hope, if you don't think the world can and probably will get better, then there's very little point in doing anything. Whether that's writing a newspaper column or taking part in an Extinction Rebellion protest or going on a march or joining a political party or even just getting up and having your breakfast. You can't live without hope, really. I agree with you in the sense that this is a time in which it's often very hard to see even flickers of it. But I still do feel enough hope having seen and talked to various people and the things that I carry on doing to keep me going, you've just got to look a bit harder. So I'm going to ask you about what gives you hope, John, in a second, but let's bring our uh, audience in. I'm interested, what gives people hope in this room? Feel free to put your hand up and mention anything that gives you the hear. So we have someone who's got some hope uh, on a kind of faux leather settee. Tell us. <laughs> Um, what gives me hope are my friends who are running for local government, starting s- small grassroots movements. That's really inspired me to also support them as well. So seeing those little pockets pop up gives me hope. Very good. That means I have to say my favorite line earlier than I was going to, which is, I think I read it first in a Cornell West book, but it's repeated by lots of people. Greta Thunberg said it as well, which is, it's not hope that leads to action, it's action that leads to hope. Absolutely. Okay, yes, the gentleman here. Uh, I think uh, the youth, the youth of today, I think uh, my generation, people in their 60s and 70s, have kind of caused a lot of issues. The youth, I think, are tremendous. And I have great hope for the youth. Very good. All right, John, you hope you're remembering all of these provocations. That's, that's young people, action, politics. Yep. 
Well, I hope it wasn't a Guardian typo, but uh, last week it was reported that uh, Ethiopians planted 350 million trees. That was not a typo. (laughs) Good. So actually what's happening in the developing world, yeah? Well, I just thought it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, gentleman in a hat. We like a man in a hat. Yeah, hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, The rising sun gives me hope um, because uh, through history, it's the giver of life, the giver of warmth. There's something hopeful in iconography, in in visual media. We we see the rising sun as something that uh, makes us uh, feel warm, share the warmth, uh, be together, be hopeful, I think. Yeah, so the rising sun gives me great hope. It's a signifier of life. The rising sun. For us, the rising sun. Every single day, it starts with hope, yeah. Okay. Unless you live in Manchester, you don't see the sun very Well, that's true. (laughs) But we've also, at the same time, come to fear the sun because of, of climate change. Okay. Very good. Oh, and then finally here, yeah, we're, we're doing a whole man and hat thing. Yeah, go. I get hope from the fact that we are now at a level that we are technologically advanced and oh. that our various sciences are coming together and that I hope that we can innovate for the future and that the pickle that we've got ourselves in, in various things, we can innovate our way out of. Very good. So there you are, John. We've had young people, we've had technology, we've had nature, we've had politics and action so science te- i mean that is a pretty good list of the kind of things that give people hope but what gives you hope in particular uh, a lot of the same things so i'll just i'll pick a few of those i come from i live in a town called Froome in somerset anyone in from Froome? no it's quite Tis- a long way tisbury here tisbury's quite near i can walk in near tisbury occasionally anyway um Froome is the cradle of uh, an idea called flat pack democracy, which some of you may have heard of. And the idea is that at the, at the lowest, in quote marks, level of local government, which is town and parish councils, uh, you can do quite amazing things now. Well, the only silver lining of, uh, of David Cameron... Is he in? He comes here, doesn't he? He does come here. He brought in the Localism Act in 2011, and one of the, one of the silver linings of that was uh, it gave these councils at the lowest tier of local government, in theory, the power to do anything they liked. And in Froome, our town council uh, is run by a group called Independence for Froome, who threw all the Tories and Lib Dems pretty much at a stroke off the town council. They hadn't really done anything for years. And they, by doing it, by experience, they came up with this new way of doing that tier of local government. It's amazing what they've done. We have a publicly funded food bank. We have all sorts of green initiatives. Uh, We have car sharing schemes. We have an electronic bike scheme. They've opened a new town hall, which they bought for cheap off Somerset County Council, which is all full of organisations from the voluntary sector. And the town itself is full of this sense now of possibility because of what they did. And that's an example of the fact you don't have to wait for people at the very top, people in the big state, to pull the levers. You can lead by example and make very real changes where you are. And I see that not just where I live. I meet a lot of people in local and city and town government who are doing comparable things. So that gives me hope. On the subject of younger people, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I'm getting old a bit now. I'm 49 and, you know, I don't quite understand the music these millennials listen to and uh, the fact they're so conversant in their own pain. We just used to call it the heebie-jeebies and just sort of get on with it. But uh, nonetheless, they are quite an amazing generation in the sense that they are very, very politicised and networked and they seem to know exactly what they were doing. And I feel a little bit embarrassed about my generation by comparison because my generation, we're now hitting our 50s and we didn't really do much. You know, We gave the world David Cameron, Miliband Brothers, you know, a generation of politicians who either didn't make it into power or when they did, sort of cocked it up almightily. So uh, in that sense, I think hope kind of does reside in the under-30s. They seem like a very, very switched-on, worldly 
capable generation to so it. So let, let me, I want to pick up both those, uh, those thoughts, John. So the first one is this idea that there, there's great stuff happening locally, yeah? And I hear about I hear, hear about Frome, I hear about... Froome. Froome, come on. Froome. I hear about Wigan, I hear about Preston, I hear about Barking and Dagenham, I hear about Camden. You know, I hear about great places where people are doing local stuff and it feels, you, know, you hear it really being talked about, it feels like there's a little kind of secluded space here of progressivism and possibility. But does it all add up, is the question. Does it, Add up to what? Does it add up to... Because in the end, the decisions that could be made by our new Prime Minister can kind of have a much bigger effect than all these things. That are like, I mean, at what point does this localism turn into, for example, effective national leadership for, for progressive politics? Well, you lead by example, as I've said. So you can start doing things at a town or city level and prove that they work, and that then becomes part of the noise that then becomes inescapable, and politicians then have to do something about it. Let's not forget, you know, the National Health Service, fundamentally, was not drawn up uh, on a, a sheet of paper in a, a Whitehall department, the National Health Service drew its inspiration from, among other places, what people had been doing by way of self-help in the South Welsh Valleys. Miners who got together to create their own mutually supportive health schemes, friendly societies, all of that. The welfare state, in terms of its ideas, has its origins in what people did on a grassroots level. And then it was sort of enlarged and copied up and it became a national thing. That's how politics works. I think it's often overstated. We, we invest too much faith in these people in suits, and we think, well, you go away and think about it and come back with an idea. The point is, you can begin to do it yourself, and at that point, history shows us that people might listen and think you can do it on a larger scale. I don't, you know, I don't buy the idea that there's some huge separation or limit to what but, you do locally, and it, and it axiomatically stops, and how you do it nationally is a different question. I think they're the same question very often. But we, uh, uh, you and I, John, we... Solitary clap, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Wittgenstein once asked, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And now we know. Um, uh, we occupy that kind of George Orwell position of uh, being season ticket holders on the left, but spending, spending our entire time standing on the terraces hurling abuse. I'm not even food. going anymore to the match. I don't right. know about you. Um, and I've stopped watching Sky Sports. Yeah, well, there you are. But... Uh, is part of the reason for the kind of man in suits sorting everything out issue that the left is ambivalent because the left doesn't, on the one hand, the left does have this tradition of bottom-up activism, experimentation, but it's also got the notion of let's get hold of the great levers of state power and then that's the only way to make change. Right. You know, the, the left has got a big statism written through it. It's a very, very big problem indeed on the left. It goes back years. Um, I think it, it comes with a, a sort of... A mistrust, really, of anyone outside the tent, you see. So I have a... For example, so in, in Froome's a good example of this. So at the last round of local elections in Froome, Independents for Froome put up all their candidates. Now, in some senses, you can argue that it's good to have a contest in the interest of democracy, but I thought it was very telling that the only of one of the, of the mainstream political parties that put up candidates against them and decried their record, which, in my opinion, is sort of almost beyond criticism, for the moment at least, was the Labour Party. And it was that the Labour Party didn't like it because they weren't Labour people, right? They're not one of us. And if the thing is, in an age like ours, which is massively pluralistic, where the idea that you can define yourself by saying, I'm a Labour person or I'm a Tory person or I'm a Lib Dem is absurd. Necessarily, you have to put together broad, varied coalitions of people. Uh, and the left isn't very good at that. I think the left is also addicted to the myth of 45. Now, 1945, all the great things that that Labour government did in those six short years up to 1951 was a great thing. 
but it went with the grain of a particular model of society which people like me call Fordist. It was essentially based on the large factory. That was the basic social unit. And you could say, hello, here's 40,000 of you have this. Here's 5 million of you have this. I'm the man from the ministry and I've come to give you this. The world isn't like that anymore. The big state won't work for that reason. Even if you want to author change on a national scale, you have to do it by putting together hundreds and thousands of different initiatives and organisations and making it work in that sense, certainly bringing them in. The idea, which I think is still prevalent at the top of the Labour Party, that you just stand there and, as you say, like a, some sort of cosmic railway signalman, just pull these big levers and suddenly everything's OK. The only thing that applies to is tax policy. You know, there's no localist version of tax policy. You want to tax the rich more, that's a Whitehall decision. But everything else... Department of Work and Pensions, National Health Service, Department of Communities and Local Government, everything else, to my mind, should be pushed to the most local possible level. I want to go back, also, you were talking about Froome and uh, what's gone on there. Uh, we talk a lot about what's happened in working-class parts of Britain and how they've moved towards uh, Brexit, for example, and kind of anger. But there's another trend that you're kind of interested in, which is kind of the Tory Highlands have also shifted quite Interestingly, not the Scottish Highlands, no. no, not the Scottish Highlands, but the Tory Highlands are kind of the, the kind of areas that were t- core Tory areas have kind of changed in their character yeah, in ways have. that people aren't kind of talking about. So that's another thing that gives me hope. Actually, is I come from uh, it's not a place, but they gave the constituency the name Tatton. Uh, Tatton is comprises now the towns of Wilmslow. This is all in Cheshire. Well-known left wing. Anyone from med. Cheshire? Oh, look, there's two people. Where are you from in Cheshire? Cheshire? Warrington. Warrington. Different Cheshire, see. <laughs> so, Wilmslow, Nutsford, Alderley Edge. Anyone heard of that? Alderley Edge has the highest per capita consumption of champagne of anywhere in Britain. <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo used to park his car on double yellow lines, blithely knowing that, uh, that the, any fines were like 1p to him. So, a lot of it's that kind of place. But it's socially liberal, by and large. And it's sort of pro-European. And it's full of people who've done quite well in the Manchester economy and have moved out to where I used to come from. It's changed quite a lot. And have brought sort of city Mancunian values out into the shires, right? Um, as far as I understand it from the statistics, it has a Remain voting majority. And do you know who the local MP is who succeeded George Osborne? Esther McVeigh. <laughs> this doesn't make sense, right? And I think if Boris Johnson takes the Tory party further down a kind of hard-right, no-deal Brexit path, I think it may have repercussions in places like that. Down the road in Altrincham, is a, uh, sort of used to be a market town, it's now a dormitory town, it used to be the most Tory place on earth. It's the first place I ever visited a wine bar. <laughs> in 1983, when my mum took me and I wore my pastel-coloured Pringle polo shirt because it was 1983. All its local councillors now are Green Party councillors. Huge things have changed. And it's sort of in the culture, some of that, right? It's a bit like what you see here. I'm not going to say the revolution lies in street food. But the arrival of all these Green Party councillors coincided with stalls selling sourdough bread and artisan cheese on toast and so on. And once the culture... This is not an ephemeral point. Once the culture in these places sort of shifts in that direction, conservatism, as currently constructed, starts having problems. This is what David Cameron thought he'd come to avenge via modernising the Tory party, but that lasted two weeks, and then he went to sit in that shed. So I'm going to ask you one more question about this uh, kind of... Uh, in this kind of hope and fear place, but then I'm going to... We're going to talk a bit about polarisation and what it is that divides society. So I'm going to ask you, the audience, in a few moments to say what it is that you think is dividing society. John, you said something interesting to me just before we started, which is that the kind of cultural and social 
the class-based divide has become much bigger than when you yeah. know you were young. Now, we I don't think any of us would have would have predicted that. So, so say something like that, but also let me join it to something else because I use the word pre- predictability. It seems to me hope requires predictability. You know, so we hope that we can learn the guitar because if we keep doing it, we get gradually better. We can we hope we can learn a language because. So you know, without predict, if everything was completely random, you wouldn't have any hope. The problem is politics feels completely bloody random. So how, how can you feel hope in a world of kind of randomness? So uh, deal with those questions, then we'll talk about the divide. Of, uh, it's not even 11 o'clock. <laughs> My kids woke up at 24 minutes past six. Um, right, hold on a minute. So uh, first question about the way inequality manifests itself. So I'll, again, I'll talk about myself just briefly. Um, my parents are both from working class backgrounds. My father's father, my granddad was a South Welsh coal miner. My mum's dad uh, lived above a chip shop his family owned in South Bank, which is the, still the most deprived part of Middlesbrough in the northeast of England. And they went to university, my parents, and sort of became middle class, right? Now, when at school... Uh, a lot of my friends were probably what you consider working class. I didn't feel any great cultural gap between me and them, right? Materially, my family was better off than some other families. But the fact that there was only sort of one generation social mobility between us meant that we sort of felt like we were living in the same world. Now, if you move ahead 30 or 40 years, social mobility stalls. And so you increasingly get people who are second, third, fourth, fifth generation middle class. The first people I met who were second or third generation middle class was when I went to Oxford University. And I met these strange people who had their student photographs, you know, when you all get together and the professional photographer comes out. And they were hanging in the toilet. And some of them went back to when they'd only just invented photography, right? I was like, wow, look at that, right? That increasingly feels like the norm in large swathes of the middle class. And I think that makes inequality a very difficult sort of intractable problem. There are also, to go back to artisan cheese on toast and all the rest of it, there are also cultural manifestations of inequality, which, and we all participate in them, and they increase our social distance between us and other people, right? You see this at the school gate in a town that's 50-50, right? Parents like me, right, I'm guilty of this. Look at me. Do you know what I mean? I've got Vans trainers on and I made sure I bought my shorts in Gap and I drink craft beer and I buy vinyl records. You've got a beard. I've got, I've got a crap beard and, uh, you know, I've got loads of Nigel Slater cookbooks and all of this stuff, you know, and I, I don't buy I wine. Just, that's a good question. How many people in this tent have got a Nigel Slater cookbook? Put your hands up. Yeah, so, and that's only half because the other rest... Right, and you do that... Clearly, whether consciously or not, it's kind of, here's me, this is my status. And what it means is there is this yawning gap between you and people who aren't resident in that cultural world. My parents didn't really have that, right? They drove an Austin Allegro. And I remember when wine started to come into the house sometime during the early 80s. And that was about it in terms of the sort of cultural front one presented to the world. Now, there's much more of it. And I think it makes society feel much more polarised and divided. And I think that's a hell of a problem. Because the, the, people think of inequality in the Thomas Piketty, you know, he wrote that book, Capital, which everyone bought and no one read, me included, because it's about this big. But um, that's all the kind of 99-1, that's inequality. The 1% and the 99 and the rest of us, no, it isn't. The thing that makes inequality so dangerous and screws society up is a division between maybe that the top 35 or 40 and the 60 under that, and that's lived out in our everyday lives. The provocative thought there, John, is that the big divide in British society is between the people in this tent and the people not in this tent, uh, which suggests you're part of the problem. 
So, uh, who in the room has got some thoughts about what it is that's dividing us? Okay, there's a, a woman there we'll start with. I too went to Oxford from a, a big Midlands comprehensive school, but now I'm disabled and I see life in, and obviously think about life in similar ways to you. Now, it seems to me, looking at my own experience, there are three things that divide the poor from the rich now. And as you say, when we were young, it, it was the luxury items, the things you don't need. But on the things that I need and which I, don't, I can't afford access to are, first of all, my local authorities, Cumbria, which is one of the poorest authorities in the country and refuses to fund treatment that I need. Okay. So the NHS is the first one. The second thing is access to legal aid, which has, of course, been taken away, yeah. which, although it only affects a small number of people in the country, is absolutely devastating. So, so obviously that's, that's a massive thing and has taken us back to the 19th century as regards access to justice. And the third one, access to food that doesn't have rubbish in it. Thank you very much. So we've got austerity and inequality, decline of public services. Let's, let's go here. Uh, yes, I, I woke up the day after uh, Brexit and I remember seeing Facebook and not one person had, uh, had voted leave of everyone who tweeted. Yeah. And I remember thinking, who are these people who are voting to leave? I just don't know any of them. Uh, and, and I think it brings me back to, I think, one of the opening points, and this isn't meant in any way to dig, but I think you, you made the comment of the uh, deluded right. And I, I agree, I often am guilty of saying phrases like that also. Uh, do, do you think that it's kind of language like that that makes us less conducive to debate? It's a very good point. Right, thank you. So, uh, um, the way we caricature each other politically, that's another candidate for divides in British society. We'll go here. I was just wondering, I was working in a primary school for quite a lot of years. I don't anymore. The kind of middle-class parents' kids turn up with a huge vocabulary and they're really articulate and they go to museums and everything. And then there are other kids who don't have those advantages. But it feels like the thing that really holds them back is they have no emotional resilience. And I think that might be like a kind of parenting thing. I'll widen that slightly. So that's a kind of a view that says the big divide is between those who have the kind of tools to thrive yeah, in the yeah. 21st century and those who don't. And then we'll go here. I was wondering about the cognitive dissonance brought about by the appearance of similarity. So in a world in which you can buy the same outfit in Zara and Primark that you can see on the catwalk, where you can post your Instagram picture to make it look as though you're having a super glamorous holiday in order to fit in with people you go to school with, but in fact you're, you're, you're living a very different life. And ultimately that's, that, that, that's going to break down, um, but you're creating appearance of similarity where actually there's deep divide. Yeah. Sort of faux democracy kind Good. of. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Or okay, kind of faux, faux status. Fine, yeah, final, yeah. final point here, and then we'll bring John back in. I'm going to ask you about Boris Johnson in a minute as well. But. I want to return to that language question because I think the fact that we are classified as left and right is really damaging, particularly because we have such a right-wing press. They can label everything that's progressive as left and therefore bad in lots of mad ways. And when you look at Tory and Labour manifestos, they tend to be based around the past. And what we need is parties that are about the future. And I know that everybody actually wants a better future. 
So what a brilliant set of a really good question of, 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 of what divides us from kind of austerity, public services, inequality to the kind of the faux idea that we're all part of the same culture when we really know we're not part of the same culture. It's politics because actually politics is there to heal. It, it's the way in which we caricature each other. But these are really good theories. So so uh, you've travelled the whole country, John, and you've talked to all sorts <laughs> of people. You are, in my view, the most thoughtful, what the just about the most thoughtful person on this question of polarisation and what drives it in Britain. So respond to those suggestions and bring bring to bear other ideas and most of all tell us are these divisions that you can ever see healing so uh, you've got five minutes got five minutes right uh well austerity to answer a, a point and i think it was sort of implied actually in what our teacher friend said as well the cuts austerity is a sort of ugly abstract word right cutting public services is what we're talking about and cutting people's access to public services undoubtedly makes all of this worse because your only way out of the hole if you find yourself in it is spending your own money bluntly put so it's a really good example my son's autistic he does okay at school he gets the support he needs because i had and my partner has the informational wherewithal and let's be honest the dough to fight the local council and get him what he needs. Now, if you're in a disadvantaged circumstance with a child with special needs, I know from having spoken to people, it is massively difficult to get any supportive provision at all. That's one example. The awfulness of austerity is only compounded by the fact that Boris Johnson arrives at 10 down and he goes, oh, you ignore all that, we'll just spend loads of money now. So why are there all these kids with special educational needs or haven't got the help they need? Why is adult social care being hacked back when apparently the magic money tree was there all along? Theresa May's famous magic money tree. So that's a huge consequence to all this. The business about resilience and all that. I see what you mean and I can see that it's true outwardly. But I wonder... In the case of the kind of disadvantaged families that you're talking about, why supplies of resilience in terms of being able to pass them on to their kids, why they're so low? And the answer is they're used up. If, if you're in a, a chaotic situation through no fault of your own, if you're on a zero-hours contract, if, you're, if, you, if you live with insecure housing tenure, if making ends meet on a weekly basis is something that's very, very difficult, all your supplies of resilience are going to be used up. And we all know how human emotions work. If you're in that situation, you're not going to be living on a terribly even keel. And your kids will feel that. And that's another way that inequality manifests itself. So a good example of this is when my kids were at primary school, whenever we used to go, I always noticed that the kids used to rock up late for school. You must know this, at like three minutes past nine, ten minutes past nine. They always had, their uniforms always looked pretty ragged and their parents looked stressed out their minds and they came from the houses in town that were the ones that were on short-term lets and I know these to look at them and they're probably run by bad landlords and all that and it was all kind of part of the same package. You know, you, inequality, again, this is the thing about the left and its, and its love of the big state. The other thing the left always takes refuge in is statistics. It always talks about inequality is 6% of this and 3% of that, and the 10% of this own 37% of that. That's not how it manifests itself. If you want to talk meaningfully about it, A, in convincing people who don't think about it that they ought to think about it, but also talking about what you do about it, it's about lived experience, right? You have to talk about it in terms of what goes on every day at half past eight and half past three, and when you put your kids to bed, and when you switch on the radio and all of that. That's where inequality lives. There's no point talking in percentages. They're real, right? They can inform your argument, but you're not going to convince anybody. On the, we don't need left or right anymore, I, I disagree with that in the sense that I am on the left. I know I'm on the left because of the basic way that I look at the world. Probably somewhere back in the mists of prehistory, 
you know, some cave dweller killed a saber-toothed tiger and came back and said, how are we going to divvy this up, right? And half the tribe said, well, you killed it, you can eat it all. And, the, and then half of them said, well, can we get together and figure out a more equitable means of distribution? And there the left-right divide was born, in those hills over there, in a limestone rock formation. I just think it's, it's indicative of, of an elemental way that different kinds of people think about how to do things. That is not to say, however, that both left and right are stuck in the past, which was your second point, which I completely agree with. We are living in a new economic model, right? A new kind of society. The, the age of the factory and the big state and the man from the ministry, to echo something I said earlier, saying, here's this, be grateful and now go away. All of that has gone. It's a time of massive disruption. It's a time when people's working lives change at speed. Even the idea that you think of yourself as a worker. You hear the Labour Party talk all the time about workers, you know. People are much more than workers. I'm not denying the importance of work. But we live as consumers. Our lives as consumers are very, very important. Our lives as parents, carers, people who don't do paid work. That's the other thing that the discourse of workers does. It it, it removes at a stroke people who have extremely busy, worthwhile lives without whom society would fall apart. So I think it's absolutely right that after all this talk of modernisation from both parties in the last 20 years, we need a, a big dose of it. But we mustn't let go, in my opinion, of our fundamental sort of principles and beliefs that define what we are on the left. And I want a much more equal society. I want a public realm as distinct from the market. And I want a sustainable world, which isn't going to burn. And those things, so far, until the right wakes up, put me on the left. So when we think about the divisions that you've written about and talked about, and there's the right and there's the left, but overlaying that, there's the Brexit division as well, the kind of authoritarian liberal divide. It, It does feel as though... One thing that has to happen is, is leadership, a different kind of leadership, yeah. right? So it's not about waiting for the great woman or great man to come along, but in some sense, without that, it's really, really hard to see what changes. Now, Boris Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. So Great um, man. Pe- people on the left have this kind of lazy Boris Johnson is kind of our Donald Trump, which I, I, I just, for me, that's just not terribly helpful. Yeah. A more interesting comparison is Boris Johnson is our Ronald Reagan. Now, you know, Ronald Reagan, there are a lot of terrible things happened on Ronald Reagan. Inequality grew enormously in America and the process of basically incarcerating a, you know, a quarter of the young black men in that country also accelerated dramatically under Reagan. And, and those things are just terrible things on their own. But if you ask most Americans, they would say that when Reagan left office, and when Reagan came into office, I mean, I remember thinking, because I'm old enough, you know, this is bonkers. They've, they've, they've elected this kind of old, failed movie star who clearly doesn't know his ass from his elbow to be the most... I mean, you know... They, they, yeah, he spends all day in bed and all yeah, that. It feels like golden that. days yeah. in comparison now. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but at the end of Reagan's eight years, most Americans would say America was more united than it was at the beginning of his time, the end of Carter's time, right? So my question, Joe, and I know it's a long question, is that, you know, on the left, we all want Boris to fall flat on his face. But if the divisions that worry you and worry me and worry us are so dangerous. If Boris, even in his kind of bumbling, strange way, maybe just because he gets a lot of luck because the upper classes always seem to get a lot of luck, could he succeed? And if he did succeed, could we bear it? It's a great question. Well, look, it depends how you define success. Could he win the next election, which might arrive in a matter of weeks? (laughs) Yes. Could he win an election after that? Yes. So this idea that 
necessarily? Is politics are either so extreme or all over the place or a mixture of both or that Brexit is going to finish him off? You know, I don't buy those things because it's not that long ago since I recall The Guardian sending me to walk around Manchester with a picture of him just to see what people said. This is 10 or 15 years ago when he was on Have I Got News For You every week. And people liked him, even in Manchester, which hasn't got a single Tory city councillor, right? And they said, oh, yeah, it's Boris. Yeah, he's funny. Yeah, he's always having a laugh, you know. He always seems kind of bright and like he's kind of optimistic in some way. And that's what he trades on now. And what his opponents on the political left, I think, are are hopeless at is optimism. Not to say that society isn't in a mess in all kinds of ways and Brexit isn't terrible and getting more terrible by the hour at all, but... What Jeremy Corbyn, there's the elephant in the room, there he is. Um, What Jeremy Corbyn tends to do is he makes these long, rambling, interminable speeches that have no clear beginning, middle or an end. And he just says everything's awful. Everything's terrible. That may be true, but uh, history teaches us that the left only wins when it's optimistic. You know, when it's Harold Wilson's white heat of new technology or... Your former colleague, Matthew Tony Blair, in 97, that was an immensely optimistic moment. I personally think it went horribly wrong you know, about three or four years after that. But nonetheless, that he won and became this sort of iconic political figure because he was optimistic. Because he said, we can be better than this. And this is how we do it. And these, this is where I see the signs of that optimism. And Boris at the moment has a monopoly on... Sorry, not Boris. Johnson. Stop it. Johnson has a, a monopoly on optimism. And... With that optimism, you can smooth over all sorts of things. So, yeah, from my perspective, he's dangerous, and I think he remains a character with a great deal of political appeal, potentially. Not to say he's not doing a terrible job, and I suppose in the end, I think that a lot of those underlying tensions about the new kind of economy and society that we live in, I think they'll probably come to get him. You know, all political careers end in failure, and his will sooner or later, because what's he got to say? about the gig economy? What's he got to say about those howling, very visible levels of inequality that we're talking about? What's he got to say about the fact... I mean, he can throw a bit of money at schools and the police and the north of England and so on, but I don't think it's going to get near the state of borderline kind of social breakdown that a lot of our public services are in. So in that sense, I I think he'll be found out. But that isn't to say that in the... The short term won't last for quite a while and he might be very successful. So it seems to me, John, as we finish that we've kind of gone full cycle because we're back to this question of hope again. So my final question to you is, is, you know, we we talked about why you need to hope and we said, well, you need to hope because that's what, you know, it helps uh, leads to action or you need to act because it leads to hope. But there's a kind of more prosaic reason why you have to hope, which is it's just more attractive. And, you know, in the end, politics is about being attractive to those people who are, and everyone in this room is probably quite political. But for people who aren't political... They do respond to what's attractive. And Brexit, Boris Johnson, all of this, if this ends up being a, a fight between people on the right who say, yes, we can, we can do it, blah, blah, and, and people on the left going, oh, no, everything is absolutely messed up, it's all completely hopeless. Well, there's only one winner, isn't there? There totally is. There totally is. Now, Ed Miliband, who I mentioned earlier, and I think, incidentally, he didn't win the 2015 election, but in many senses he had a, quite a lot of the right ideas, so, certainly instinctively. He said to me after uh, the Brexit referendum, he's the MP for Doncaster North, and he said that he'd never felt a mood of optimism in Doncaster like there was in the wake of the 2016 referendum, right? People have this idea that people in sort of post-industrial, predominantly working-class parts of England all voted Brexit in a mood of despair, right? That's true to some degree. But what got them the last few inches to the polling station to put the cross in that box was optimism. 
They felt hopeful voting for Brexit, right? And a lot of them still do. That's something that we have to deal with. And that, that's, a, that's a lesson in everything that you've talked about, in the politics of hope. You know, you can't... If you want to make someone who's anxious feel better, they come and you go, I'm scared about this, this and this. Do you say to them, you're absolutely right to be scared? I can't imagine what it's like being in your shoes. It must be terrible. And if I were you, I'd kill myself. It's not going to work. You say, do you know what? I think together we can make it better. If you follow me down there to that place, I reckon we can do something about that. And they'll listen to you. So, I mean, that feels instinctively correct to me. And I think left politics has yet to take that on board, you know, after 100 years or whatever it's been. One other thing I want to say, though, and, and this is another cause for hope. Someone mentioned earlier about the use of language about the right and saying that the right was deluded. I think that of right-wing politicians, but the biggest mistake people make in this country and all over the world, actually, right now, is conflating or confusing people who vote for particular parties and politicians with those politicians themselves. So everybody who votes for Brexit must be like Nigel Farage, right? And everybody who votes for Donald Trump is exactly like Donald Trump, and it's not true. All the time I meet people who have some views and vote for things that I disagree with, but, although this may sound naive, most of them, most of them, still seem to me to be very, very good people, often in the midst of difficult circumstances, who have an essentially sort of communitarian, let's maybe do this together and try and get through it and make the world better kind of attitude. And that gives me hope. So in other words, it's not about Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson or Donald Trump's success. It's about our side's failure. And the sooner we get to grips with that, the better. Ladies and gentlemen, John Harris. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Thank you very much for participating in RSA Polarized.